0: fresh-faced guy in his Chevy offered him a lift. Parker told him to go to hell. The guy said, screw you, buddy. He yanked his Chevy back into the stream of traffic and roared on down to the toll booths. Parker spat in the right-hand lane, lit his last cigarette, and walked across the George Washington Bridge. And that is our introduction to Parker, the great literary creation of Richard Stark, a.k.a. Donald E. Westlake. We're going to be talking today about The Hunter, the first book in the series, the Parker series, by richard stark this is the pink smoke podcast i'm john cribs i'm here with chris funderberg and chris do you think it's worth taking a minute just to kind of explain what the parker series is for people who might not be aware of it
1: uh yeah absolutely right
0: yeah <laughs> what is the parker series john how many books is it 23 books total 24 total the initial run uh which started in 1962 that's why we're starting with this one. It's the 60th anniversary of this book Parker's of the hunter yeah the Hunter. Um, Went to the late se- mid seventies, sixteen books, almost one a year, and um, then after a while, Westlake t- took a little bit of a break and came back to the series and did eight more before he passed away. Uh, I'd say
1: one so a year is so- kind of a is a misnomer for that because what happened was is he wrote The Hunter and his publishers liked it so much they convinced him to turn it into a series. We'll talk a little bit about how that affected the contours of the book and and what it ended up being. And their their idea was you're going to make this into a series where you write three books a year. So his follow-ups in those years, he wrote three books a year basically at the beginning. They weren't published three a year, but he wrote three a year. And then he couldn't keep up that pace and it sort of fell to one Every other year, although it's unclear to me why he couldn't keep up that pace because he was writing a ton of other stuff. He wrote under his own name and other pseudonyms all throughout this era. He was constantly writing. It's sort of a uh, a miscategorization to our mischaracterization to say he couldn't keep up that pace. It's more like he couldn't keep up that pace while writing A half dozen Another other novels nah, <laughs> and short stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Westlake is also uh, a very adapted author. The Hunter, which we're going to be talking about, was adapted by John Borman into Point Blank, starring Lee Marvin. Uh, very, very great film. Not particularly similar to the book it's been uh parker as a character has made his way to screen in a then uh, i think uh probably like 10 or 11 different incarnations depending on on how you count some of them just, does does slayground count as bringing Par- parker to the screen yes or no i say no if, if uh, parker does then <laughs> slayground does if slayground does then maiden usa has to guitars oh, in usa um <laughs> But he's a very, his other stuff has been adapted as well. The film The Hot Rock is based on one of the John Dortmunder novels, which is written by um, Westlake under his regular name. That's his other big running series under the name Westlake are the Dortmunder novels, which are almost like a, com- a comedic variation on the Parker books, sort of competing with them at the same time. And he's also a screenwriter. He wrote the excellent, excellent script for The Stepfather, the Terry O'Quinn. Uh, horror movie uh, from the 80s. And he also wrote the script. He adapted Jim Thompson's The Grifters for Stephen Frears, the film starring uh, John Cusack and Angelica Houston and Annette Benning. So he's a he's a screenwriter. He's a novelist. He's an adapted screenwriter. Uh, he's really um, belongs to that era of writer when writers really wrote they just fucking wrote the hell out of stuff. They were writing all the time, and any paying job that came along, they wrote it. You know, I really think of him as as being uh, just something. Something changes at a certain point. Uh, I feel like a little bit with where genre writers they still write a lot, but they they don't write like they used to. It
0: right. feels like. In fact, uh, it was like it spent, spent most of the fifties writing smut, right? Writing erotic fiction yeah. under various pseudonyms. And by the time he came to write The Hunter, he had three crime books published at that point. The Mercenaries, a.k.a. The, the Cutie or the Smashers, Killing Time, a.k.a. the Operator, and then 361, which came out the same year, which is funny because a character in this lives in room 361, which is a nice little self-reference there that i had never noticed before. He
1: loves self-references. The uh, The name of the um, stock fake stockbroker company is called, uh, uh, what is it called? It's called... Is called Stark Co. and Fellows. And right. those were in his uh, suit yeah. in The Grifters. What did I
0: say? No, I, I missed if you said.
1: That, so. Oh, and in the Grifters, the stock company is called Stark Co. and Fellows because he wrote under Stark Tucker Co. and some other fellows. So that's why he he named it that. He really likes those kinds of uh, small but unintrusive uh, unintrusive but pointed self references is something he does. And of course, in Jimmy the Kid, that's probably the most famous one, which is revolves around. It's a Dortmunder novel where that revolves around a fake Parker novel that doesn't exist, where they get the idea from the high for reading the fake Parker novel and um, Stark himself is a character in the novel. Donald Westlake writes his own pseudonym. It's very, uh, and uh, the dark half, the Stephen King book sort of makes reference to this by naming his main character George Stark after Richard Stark, very pointedly. He, I think he's somebody who's who's very influenced by Westlake. Westlake is somebody that um, genre writers love. He's, he's really a, a king amongst genre writers. And I have no idea what his reputation is outside of niche stuff i don't know if the general public recognizes the name i'm obviously a huge fan i named my son parker after these books you know in part also after parker tyler and
0: peter parker but he was named oh, parker i thought you i thought you named him after yaphco to an alien i was wrong all these <laughs> years.
1: he was psyched when that character was named alien when we watched alien he's <laughs> always psyched when people are named parker uh he was named after parker posey named after parker posey
0: <laughs> true story That's legit. Yeah, no, it's interesting to to wonder about that, especially because I think and correct me if you disagree that in the at least in the late 20th century, Richard Stark is like the most famous pseudonym of like any fictional writer. I mean, of course, Stephen King has like Richard uh, Bachman. Bachman must be more famous. I don't think so, because Bachman's work is not on par with King's, you know, it's not doesn't have the reputation of King's other novels, you know, whereas Richard Stark and Parker is really its own entity, Next to Donald Westlake, you know, so it's like two things that exist and are like on equal footing with each other, at least.
1: Well, well, Ed McBain certainly overtakes uh, Evan Hunter. Like McBain is more is more famous than the real name that Evan Hunter also. Yeah, wrote I'd say or... that
0: Ed McBain actually is more. Famous yeah, than Evan Hunter. exactly. Yeah. yeah, good point.
1: But it is you're definitely right that it is a pseudonym that sort of uh, definitely. Is at very least in close neck and neck competition with the the real thing in a in a funny way. So you're definitely uh right about that. I should not dispute it, but I don't I don't know. It's the kind of thing where I mentioned to my friends that I was hanging out with last night that we were going to be recording. Uh you and I were going to be recording on this book, and they had just never heard of it. They had never heard of the writer and never heard of the book. Mm. And I'm always sort of surprised when that happens. Now they're not. I feel like cinephiles know who Westlake is because of the movie connections are so strong that you have, um, you know, Goddard and Point Blank and and you have Jim Brown movie with the the score. You have a lot of very prominent films made from the work. And then he's a screenwriter on some absolute cult classics with the Stepfather and the Grifters. So I feel like cinephiles, generally know who he is that it's stronger in that way than other people but I was I was sort of shocked that it was they had never even heard of him and I wonder if that's closer to uh how it would be for people I just have no way to measure uh what people know about him if you haven't heard of him and you haven't read any of these books and you like crime fiction what I would say is turn off the podcast stop whatever you're reading put it down Go read all of the original run up through Butcher's Moon. And then when you're done with that, come back and finish listening to the podcast and pick up whatever you're reading again. They're so imminently consumable. They're so great. They're like foundational crime writing in a fundamental way. I feel like if you like crime genre writing, like you got you got to you just got to do them. You know, like if it'd be like, I love books about the mafia and I've never read The Godfather or, you know, wise guys, you know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing? Go read them, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, full disclosure here, we both read the entire series. This is a reread for us after a few years of reading them. And so, you know, we're kind of taking that, you know, analysis, you know, kind of as, you know, having done it once and now we're kind of going back and kind of looking over it again. Yeah, but I read this book in one sitting Like it's that readable Like I sat down <laughs> yeah. and just shot right through it Like it was not even an hour and a half Like it's just such I mean he has sparse writing down To a science you know this kind of writing Is just so fun and quick And entertaining Every single Parker novel just has that same style That is just again he just got The Richard Stark Aesthetic down so perfectly That he was he able to so, you know, the names you know, one after another
1: he picked the name Stark because he wanted the writing to be Stark in contrast to his normal sort of ironic, almost humorous uh, sort of storytellerish attitude in his other books. He also wrote a phenomenal book called The Axe that you and I both love that was turned into a, a movie by Costa Gravis. And have yeah, uh, talked
0: about a lot of his books on the podcast. Obviously, yeah. you're both big fans. He's written some really fantastic books.
1: But his other books have a have a tendency to have like a raconteurish sort of almost jauntiness to them. He tells the story the way when you're hanging around with somebody and they've had a couple drinks and they sort of hold court and tell stories. With Stark, it's not like that. They're super stark. It's to even call them lean isn't right because they're very muscular stories. Hmm. They're just, they're just Dark, I think, is the great description for them and the way he um, the the self-conscious attitude that he goes into with them. And we'll talk about we're going to focus on the hunter right now. We have the idea to uh, later in uh, future episodes, talk about more of the books, maybe go through book by book do something like that who knows and then to do an episode where we talk about the film adaptations in depth so we're not really going to talk about many of the other books or the film adaptations but it's sort of unavoidable when discussing this stuff um and i would say that the books are variable sometimes he he loses a hold of the stark style especially uh you know there's there's a run of green eagle score rare coin score uh that things get kind of samey that he sort of has to pull himself out of um black ice score he he basically loses the handle ha! he doesn't lose the handle in the handle he loses the handle in the black Eye score um on just what the character is and what he's supposed to be doing. And in fact, he said that the series stops at Butcher's Moon. He just, he said he forgot how to write it, that he couldn't summon up the personality anymore. And that's why there's a big gap where he stops writing the Parker books. And in fact, when they come back, I like those later books. I don't think of them as Parker books, really. They really, are I don't think of them as Stark books. They're like if Westlake, wrote the Parker series. It's like Westlake took over the Parker series from Richard Stark, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to hear that he said that because I mean, that last trilogy of the initial run those last three books are probably my favorite. I yeah, Slayground, love those books.
1: Plunder Squad and Butcher Moon are just—it's like a loose trilogy. The way the first three books of of the series, The Hunter, Man with the Getaway Face, and The Outfit, are a loose trilogy. It begins with a loose trilogy and ends with a loose trilogy, and it is fucking knockout shit. It is really, it's really great, and they're weird, and they each have their own personality, and uh, and it's. As epic as Westlake gets, is Butcher Butcher's Moon. It definitely as epic as Parker gets, and there's no sacrifice of the style in any of it. He writes a, a sort of epic finale trilogy while remaining stark and focused, and um, uh, like a like a dog on the trail. That's how I would describe Parker. It's just he's a, he's a he's an animal on the scent of something as a character, and the writing style follows suit. You know, he's the animal on the leash that that Westlake is sort of holding on to and being drawn along by.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The narrative, you know, is Parker. I mean, follows him even when it goes away from him. You know, it's just like it's he's the drive of these narratives. And while there's, you know, there's slight variety and quality, like you said, you would never like read one of these and be like well that was a waste of my time you know like yeah. all of these books are good some are just better than others and even the
1: black black ice score like a lot black Eye score is the one where i'm like this is not this is not good and this has lost its way that's the only one all of the others like even the rare coin score and um and uh uh the green eagle score that i mentioned they're fun they're interesting they're parker doing what you want them to do mm-hmm. and and that's good they're completely they're disposed it's just more time with a character you like and a writer you like and they're fun but they couldn't keep going on that way it's yeah, yeah you couldn't write it would turn into to the you know uh, one of those series that has like 149 books that are all indistinguishable like the the uh, oh, sure. ex- the executioner series or something just like those series that you know uh, just sort of run out of any kind of uh, narrative imagination
0: Sure. Absolutely. But I would still love to, you know, talk about these books later and kind of analyze, you know, just how each one, you know, kind of like changes with the flow, but in the spirit of the starkness of the Parker books. So let's get out of the, you know, the, the big huge universe of Parker and then just focus on this one book, 1962's the Hunter where we meet Parker for the first time crossing the George Washington bridge. And we find out later that he has literally traveled from California from the West coast, down to Florida and now back up to New York. This is the end of his journey without a car, without any money. He has just been like a vagrant traveling around after getting double-crossed in this heist. So we're seeing him when we're meeting him. It's literally like just at the end of this, what must have been a very grueling journey where he traveled the country surviving by jack rolling people is the word he uses, which was uncomfortable (laughs) for me because that also means gang rape. And I thought, how did he get money? What? That also means mugging people, is what I found out. But uh, so he's getting money where he can. He's sleeping, you know, on the road, wearing the same clothes, and he's now uh, back in New York, and he is ready to like take on this mission. And so what we do in the first chapter is we just find Parker at the state and his, you know, <laughs> the state, and, how, and and then see him rebuild himself once he gets there and he's on the mission. Um, what's great, I, I, one thing I love about it is how the people driving past him, the men who are driving past him feel, feel pity for him and think, Oh, I, you know, look, that, that could be me if I didn't own a car, you know, Westlake specifically points out that they, they feel this kind of like uh, superiority over him because of this, you know um, superficial kind of ownership of a thing. But what we learn, you know, very quickly is that Parker. Well, the men feel that the women
1: feel a uh, it's, it's, is it described as like a tangling above their nylons? It's this like, (laughs) attraction fear to him like they immediately recognize what kind of like irresistible but dangerous man he is and like want to get away from him like they're right. happy well, they in their cars like
0: a, like a jungle animal you know like you want to yeah. pet it but you don't want to get too close in there they say thank god for my husband you know that god i married the safe boring guy and uh, the
1: line you know, the line is have... something is something like that men like that would fall on them like a tree is that I right. think the exact line Certific. on
0: it. But what we find out is that Parker lives so per- so successfully out of the grid, right? Outside of society that he is able to build himself back up so he, that by the end of the day he has a new suit, he has money, he's eating at a restaurant because he just knows how to play the system because he lives outside of it and just has such a professional awareness. And also because this is, you know, supposed to be the early 60s or whenever it is, and it's a lot easier to fake an ID back then. when all you have to do is basically draw a stamp onto, you know, a, a temporary uh, license form or whatever it is he does that, you know, passes as a as a um, uh, passable ID. Yeah,
1: but, the first yeah. chapter is the minutiae of making a fake license, uh, going and... Conning his way into somebody's checking account at the fifth bank, I believe it is where he finally gets his scam to work, Um, then using that money that he's the checkbook that he scammed from the banking account to buy goods, which he then immediately pawns for cash and using that cash to sort of further to bankroll himself and buy the suit and uh, and just keep expanding his bankroll up to a couple thousand dollars over the course of the day through these very uh, petty scams that are described in elaborate detail. And that's one of the things that's very interesting about the book and a hallmark of the Parker books in general is getting into the minutia of the crimes and the heist and the planning and all of that of detailing in depth how his various scams and heist machinations work. And there's a lot of it. That first chapter is a
0: masterpiece of that stuff. Yeah, it's such an amazing introduction to a character who, again, everyone is seeing, you know, as this, you know, bum on the side of the bridge who is just at the very bottom of the well and is able to just create an entirely new identity for himself and be established back in society just within a matter of hours through these, Professional criminal enterprises that, again, are like you said, small, petty things that he uh, that he does, and literally goes from one bank to another using a common name until one of them clicks. And he's able to, you know, start this uh, these scams. It's fantastic. So it also...
1: why why is he on the bottom rung, and why is he coming across the country to New York? I thought this was the formidable Parker, the super thief, the uh, implacably uh, masculine, immovable object force of nature character. Why is he down living like a hobo and coming to New York City,
0: John? The reason is uh, a guy named Mal Resnick, okay? Now, Mal is an interesting character, because, I and I always forget this, every time I read the book, he is a guy who's like a, a big shot in the syndicate or he's involved with the syndicate, and then he fucks up and he owes the money and he gets kicked out and he becomes a cab driver. He's literally a hack on the street and trying to like work his way back up into it to have a big score. So he can pay back this syndicate called the outfit and get back into it in the movies in both point he, blank and payday. He and uh, Parker are like old buddies. Like they, they know each yeah. other from like old heist and everything. And, you know, in point blank, you know, John Ford's constantly saying, trust me, Parker, I'm your friend. Like, you know, so like, that's the betrayal is like, it's a friend of his, you know, fellow criminal ally who backstabs him. But I love in this book, it's just, this guy, who is like a taxi driver, taxi driver who, when Parker and his wife get into his cab, recognizes this guy as someone who is definitely going to be good at a heist. And just immediately proposes to him that he get involved with this thing in Canada that he's going to do this rip-off of a, of a arms deal, a munitions deal with Yeah, some and just because
1: you reporters. glossed over it, the, the setup is is that Mal Resnick is like a middle manager for this criminal syndicate that runs itself like a corporation. And in Chicago, in a moment of cowardly panic, he throws away 40000 dollars worth of cocaine because he thinks the cops are on to him. So to get rid of the evidence, the syndicate, the outfit, kicks him out and says. that was a fuck up but we understand what happened you can rejoin the syndicate if you pay us back the money with interest then you can rejoin the syndicate and so this is how he decides he needs to pull this big heist to get
0: back into the syndicate
1: and what is the heist
0: again the heist is an arms deal that's being arranged with uh guerrillas from south america we're going to come up to uh, going to take a plane up to Canada in this kind of like wilderness area with like an airstrip in, in Canada. And they're going to pay this money, uh, which I think is $90,000, $93,400. Right. To, to buy these arms. And basically the idea is very simple. It's just, you know, get to the, get to that airport. And then it just becomes a massacre. Basically just mow down all the, all these rebels and then steal their money and then get the hell out of there yeah and the trick of it is
1: is 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 you need to fly to this island it's a remote island so there so you need a pilot you need to get a crew that can get you in there and that's part of that's part of why it's so easy to mow them down is they don't expect anybody else who's going to try and rip them off will have flown in killed the traffic air traffic control men in the booth the in the tiny little two-person booth on this remote airstrip and just be waiting there with guns for them it's just so out of the realm of, of possibility that they're easy marks for when they arrive with the cachet of guns and the money.
0: Yeah. And, 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 going back and starting again at this one, after reading all the books, it's interesting to kind of see how he saw Parker at the beginning. This Parker in this is, uh, unrelentingly violent. Like he has got no compunctions about mowing people down, uh, a, an innocent person dies because of him. He doesn't care. You know, he has no problem going back for like vengeance reasons and things like that he has no problem with just flat out murder as the series progresses it gets a little bit more like he puts professionalism ahead of everything and if murder has to happen then okay but like in this and everything kind of you know revolves around the betrayal by his wife that he didn't see coming and how he's got he his brain kind of got fucked up by that uh but he is definitely someone who is like an untamed animal like he's willing to just mow people down and kill people a lot more so than later in the series
1: Yes, there's actually a moment in this book, which we'll get to, where he wakes up and becomes Parker. And the final chapter, which I've alluded to a few times, was tacked on. The book had a different ending originally. It's not clear to me what it was. The publisher read it and was like, this should be a recurring character. And so the ending got changed and he added this final chapter. And the final chapter is is like the other books. That's just what, what happened with it. It's very interesting. But uh, just to take people through the plot of the story, we'll have a, a a moment to get in all that. I 100% agree with you that especially in the first half, he is extremely unParker-esque. Right down to he brings his wife with him on the job, which in the later books he's it's a matter of of personal principle that seems to be long-standing and not engendered by the hunter. That he doesn't like bringing women on the jobs and doesn't like having women around, and in fact grumbles when other uh, people that he's working with. Do in particular Grofeld. He's always annoyed with with Grofeld, the actor turned heister who's bringing women along. And that is just—it's very unParker the first half. Exactly what you what you say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, I would love to like read an interview where he kind of gets into this because it seems almost like someone was looking over his shoulder saying, "You got to make it more noiry We need like more dames. You know, you got yeah. like, can't just be the sausage fest of like these heist guys going after each other. You got to throw in some sex some sex appeal, sexy lady." And yeah. so Lynn Parker becomes, you know, the second chapter and she is such an enigma. So, like, it's just a weird character who is there and then gone, but someone who is just somehow her betrayal is just burrowed into Parker's mind and kind of like driven him to this kind of desperation that we kind of meet him at the beginning. And so, he, like you say, does it become Parker till later on? And I would even say it's even earlier than that. It's after he kind of gets satisfaction when he has... Mal at his mercy. That's what I was gonna
1: say. say. He wakes yeah. up. That's, that's the exact moment. The Parker, we know. And and but he writes specifically, he's about to kill Mal Resnick, uh, about two-thirds of the way through the book. And he literally writes, he has this moment where he's like, I don't want to kill me He sort of wakes up and is like, What do I actually want from any of this? You know, yeah, and that's perfect. the moment he becomes Parker. It's yeah. sort of waking up from a dream. You know, the detail that I found the most unParkerish in the first half of the book. Good. Where's a A belt buckle that's a big P for Parker. Big P P for Parker. And I'm like, Parker does not wear a belt (laughs) buckle with a P on it because I read the books in order the first time. And it should be mentioned this book is different than the others. I'd say the only one that's even slightly similar to it is The Jugger, the fifth book in the series. Maybe the Sour Lemon score too. You know, which is which is him getting knocked off the ladder very far and trying to climb his way back up. And same thing with the Jugger, where it's just everything being misinterpreted and going wrong. And he's just trying to get out of a terrible situation,
0: you know, Um but you it's Jughead. The Jughead jug is, jug is practically the pen, penultimate chapter with the cops. You know, just like it yeah. screwed over for something he shouldn't even be involved with. You know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Um. And this one is—it is darker. It is more brutal. The violence. The people who get killed. You're right. In later books, he's very practical. He's a professional. That's. This is very much his definition. He becomes a Jean Pierre Melville character. He becomes a man who's about the work and the unity of work with. Other men and how that unity can be shattered or draw people together. And just about the minutia of day-to-day work. You know, Walter Hill's the driver. He's very much that character, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this one, he's not. He's like a foaming at the mouth out for revenge, fantasizing about strangling Mal to death. Even in later books, when he gets fucked over, he doesn't have that attitude. It's all about business. It's all what he becomes in the second half of this book when he's like, well, Mal doesn't have this money. I've got to go after the syndicate. I've got to go after the outfit to get my money when he becomes practical. You know, that's what the later books are like. Uh, Even when he's getting extremely screwed over in later books, he's he doesn't hold it against anybody. And that's what this is something you pointed out to me that I that I had forgotten is that he is going to screw Mal over. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning of this book is that Mal Resnick is right to think as soon as this heist is over, Parker's going
0: to kill me, right? That might be the funniest part of the book, actually, because yes, Mal, who needs all this money for himself, comes up with this kind of uh, shocking that it works plan where he's going to convince one of the two guys that Parker's brought along. There are five guys in total, plus Lynn, Parker's wife, are involved with this. And they're st- they're staying at uh, Keeley's Island, which is a fictional island off San Francisco, in point Blake, of course, they make it Alcatraz, but they've they 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 they're holed up in the abandoned mansion of like a movie star, like an old movie star, and so that that's where they are. That's where they have uh, an additional airstrip because, there yeah. it's convenient to take off and uh, go to Canada and then come back. It's a pretty uh, foolproof plan that they have. Very convenient to have this uh, whole mansion to themselves, obviously. But at the mansion, Mao decides he's going to convince one of the other guys. Hey, Parker's, you know, thinking of double crossing us, and so we got to strike first and gets this gullible guy to like help him kill the other two guys and then actually pulls Lynn uh out to tell her you got to kill Parker or we're going to kill you because he's decided he wants Lynn he wants to be with Lynn but yeah the funny thing that you're mentioning is that Parker's already decided that Mal is a coward and a lo- like a loose you know uh screw and so that he's going to get rid of him after the heist because he doesn't want him to be a liability after the fact <laughs> So it's not until he goes to get Parker that he overhears Parker say to Lynn, I'm going to go see Mal now, and realize, holy shit, he was going to double-cross. Yeah, while he's like loading up his gun, he's like, time to go see Mal.
1: And then Lynn, of course, shoots him and it hits his big P belt buckle, which saves his life. They burn down the mansion and Parker, uh, when he's a vagrant, barely escaping alive, barely alive after being shot, stays alive by not moving for three days, lying in the brush and then getting up. He's eventually caught on vagrancy charges on a vague charge and brought into prison. It's the first time he's ever had his fingerprints taken in 18 years or been captured in any way and sent to prison. He's on this prison farm for, uh, he has a six month sentence. He's there for four months. He's so impatient that when he sees an opportunity to escape, he kills a guard and escapes, which is obviously intensifying things for him rather than waiting for the last two months. He wants to go kill Mao that bad, right? He just wants to murder Mao that bad that he can't even wait for the last two months. Uh, to go do it and is going to go hitchhike across the country and get get revenge, play the hobo lifestyle. And what should be mentioned is all of this, all of the Parker books have a basic structure to them. This book does not have that structure, but they all jump around in time. In most of the Parker books, about halfway through, it, it, there are four parts. The first two parts are generally like the heist and the setup in some combination or the heist and the complication, right? Where they do the heist and then it goes wrong or it's the setup for the heist and then the heist itself and chapter two ends with essentially a, a cliffhanger. Then it jumps back in time in the third section of the book and goes to the villain in the villain's perspective, whoever the antagonist in the story it is. It goes back and spins that entire section of the book away from Parker with the villain. And then it sort of catches back up to time it sort of leads back up to catching up to where the second chapter ended and then the fourth chapter is resolving all the complications and that's the structure for most of them um Obviously not all of them. And there's exceptions uh, that are total exceptions, like Slayground, that really doesn't jump around in time much at all. Um, this book jumps around in time and it does it very, very well. I think it's very comparable to uh to Lionel White's Clean Break in that way. It has a similar sense of ease of jumping through time. Clean break is, of course, uh the 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 book that uh Stanley Kubrick's The Killing is based on that inherits its its fractured time structure from.
0: Yeah, it, it's just masterfully done here. I especially like just the little details like when Parker is remembering uh, what happens at the mansion and he sees the other two guys who are dead and he says, oh, Orion killed them. That's his style. And then when Mal is remembering what happened, we find out that he killed one of them. You know, it's just like yeah. these little details where you're like, oh, Parker was wrong. He Mal actually did get his hands dirty there and kill the first guy, you know, to get things started. So even the, even things like that, you appreciate him kind of going over the same scene through a different perspective. It just kind of really enriches the narrative in that way.
1: Yeah. And Parker's so confident and so intelligent. You believe his analysis. And then when he gets things wrong, it's always, Oh, that's perfectly logical too. Like Parker's wrong, but still respectable in that way. It's sort of you're always continually believe Parker in these books. And then it shows the little ways in which he's he's wrong or and he interprets scenes wrong or his plan goes awry in some way and, and has unforeseeable outcomes. Um, he's not invincibly perfect and flawless. He's, he's a guy that I would describe as great at handling problems on the fly. He's a very, very careful planner who has great plans that sometimes go off with a hitch, without a hitch, sometimes go off with a huge amount of hitches uh, or the hitches come later in the process. Double crosses, triple crosses, his failed double crosses, his anticipation of double crosses go sometimes wrong. He
0: simply misreads something and it totally fucks him over. You know, yes. this one detail that he, you know, misinterprets or overlooks, and that's like the one thing that screws him over. Sometimes he just goes out for cigarettes, and someone comes in <laughs> conveniently and steals all the money from him,
1: and kills his girlfriend with a broadsword. <laughs> um, I actually love that book, but uh, right, but he, yeah, but he's a character who's just very. You know, this time reading it, I spent a lot of time thinking about what is the difference between Parker and Mal Resnick, right? Mm -hmm. Which is obviously the book is interested in it. And it's deliberate. It's not that Parker would never double cross his buddies, he's going to kill Mal. You know, Mal is is right that, that Parker is going to kill him. And it's not that he isn't a criminal and that's not that he has a code of conduct and it's not that he wouldn't hit women or treat them badly the way Mal does. He's willing to do all that. Why is Parker such a more... Um, commanding character why is he such a more likable character i I hesitate i don't think anybody would ever use the word sympathetic to describe parker he's a very traditional anti-hero in that way but like what is what is the question of character that makes him that makes you root for him naturally and root against mal resnick you know is it just that mal resnick reminds you of the sleazy club owner and mojo nixon's where the hell's my money is that what it is (laughs) that set up the song that might as well be based on this novel no um like what is actually the the difference of character is it just that he's cowardly and parker is not is that really all it is?
0: Well, I think all you have to do is put Mal in Parker's shoes. Mal wouldn't have survived that ambush. You know, Mal would not have been able to make his way across the country, hitchhiking and uh, jack rolling his way across America. Like, no way. Like, he's definitely doesn't is not resourceful the way Parker is. He's somebody who almost kind of treats like these things he does, these these, these crimes and then his, uh, his work with the outfit. As like an inconvenience, like something he's not really interested in doing. He's interested just in the luxury of it, like the perks, you know? He, loves he dreams ladies. of being a big shot. He wants to be a big shot. He wants to drive around in fancy
1: cars. He wants a girl like the boss's secretary. Exactly. Like when Parker's coming to kill him, he gets obsessed with the idea of having a more attractive secretary. That's yeah. the kind of, of character he is.
0: And and Parker, like right off the bat, you know, we he's described as being just know lean you know tight concrete kind of like physical build of a guy just someone who you can imagine just like gets the shit done gets the job done like
1: read know. read the paragraph about his hands this is a paragraph that appears in in some fashion in almost all of the books right the description of his hands
0: his hands swinging curved fingered at his sides looked like they were molded to brown clay by a sculptor who thought big and liked veins his hair was brown and dry and dead blowing around his head like a poor toupee about to fly loose. His face was a chipped chunk of concrete with eyes of flawed onyx. His mouth was a quick stroke, bloodless. His suit coat fluttered behind him and his arms swung easily as he walked.
1: Yeah, what struck me this time is I was recently stuck in traffic on the George Washington Bridge. The book describes the wobble of the George Washington Bridge, which is very unsettling. If you're you're walking across and being stuck in traffic, I was like, yeah, it's really... For people who don't know, the George Washington Bridge is up in the sky. It's between like the Palisades cliffside and the Washington Heights Cliffsides in New York. And it is one it must be one of the bridges built just purely highest in the air of any bridge. So the wobble he describes at the beginning, I was really like, yeah, that wobbles unsettling. That is an unsettling wobble.
0: And Parker's yep. like, I never noticed it wobbled before until I walked across it. This is, a, this is not cool. He also can't help but like throwing a dig saying all the cars are headed into New York, none, none going out to New Jersey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the unfair thing is for people who aren't from New York, don't know. You pay a toll going into New York City. You don't pay a toll going out. That, is, that says everything about the New York to New Jersey uh, a dynamic there.
0: But no, those uh, those hands like, you know, are immediately described as, I mean, they're practically weapons. I mean, when he talks about wanting to get Mal under his hands, you know, to get his hands around Mal's neck, like you just imagine. Just what's in what's in from how, you know?
1: Yeah, he's constantly snatching guns away from people before they can draw them or get to them. You know, whenever there's a, a setup for him, he susses it out and is able to get the gun away from people before people can get it out of drawers or briefcases or lunch pails, you know, and just is able to knock people out and strangle them and sort of throw cops around by their neckties and that sort of thing. And the hands, he just puts so much emphasis on the hands in it, Westlake does.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, incredible physicality. And I mean, it's great to read every encounter he has with someone where he starts talking tough and they don't take him seriously. And then, you know, after a few exchanges, they realize, uh, maybe I better not fuck with this guy, actually.
1: Yeah, one thing that also struck me about this is Parker is a lot more chatty in this book, mm-hmm. in the later books, the sentence Parker said nothing, or there was nothing to say to that, is so frequent. Parker's a guy that people talk to, and he doesn't talk unless there's a very good reason for it. In this book, he makes threats, he probes around, he speaks like uh, emotionally and irrationally at times. It's very unParkerish. again, until when he's about to choke Mal to death, and he realizes, like, what do I care about choking Mal to death? This isn't going to make me feel better to kill him, although I'm obviously going to kill him in a little bit uh this this is i need something more than this and he like wakes up and wakes up and becomes parker i would say in that moment and part of the waking up is talking less pursuing an uh improbable but um expertly executed and conceived of plan uh and and just uh he takes on a starkness and a leanness and a terseness that the book has and before that he doesn't he's like watching it this time you know point blank we've always talked about how point blank is probably not the best parker adaptation it's the best movie made from a parker book Probably Um, it's it's the one that I think most people would think is the best movie made from a Parker book, Uh, but it's not really Parker ish because Lee Marvin's too much of an open wound in that in that movie he's too emotional, too angry too upset you believe he's like a ghost haunting people almost reading it this time, I was like, that's really there in the first half of this book. That that mm. actually is a fairly accurate portrayal of how Parker is for a big swath of of the hunter. And I felt like that's that's really closer than I thought of it being. Did you have any sort of similar reaction this
0: time? Definitely. I've always thought that, you know, the scene with uh, Lynn in Point Blank, where Marvin is kind of flopped down on the couch and he just looks totally wrecked and totally emotionally wrecked, you know, but like, yeah. This woman who's betrayed him really reflects the chapter in the book that kind of you know is the is the same scene, but it's uh, speaking of point blank and and payback the other uh, direct adaptation of this book, um, Greg Henry and John Vernon are both A plus casting for Sal uh, for for Mal Resnick. Right?
1: Oh, I had a thought though. yeah, they're great. They're great. They're, they're A great.
0: plus because they're terrific. The way Greg Henry says "sweetie," you know, I mean, it's just yeah. it's great. He was made, he's meant to do it, but if you're reading mal from this book it's more like a john Polito type i would think
1: it's you know who i pictured that i was like you cannot beat it he's in the outfit timothy Carey. Carey
0: that's that's
1: who yeah, mal yeah. resnick is in this book a kind of like gross sort of pudgy misshapen kind of like let me tell you something sweetie type you know yeah, yeah. like that kind of like ew guy is what mal resnick is kind uh, of although john
0: opposite of parker because you know parker like i but said palito's you know, great casting too by the yeah, way but pe- people you know don't take parker seriously until like they realize how dangerous he is with with mal everyone is intimidated by him because he's this outfit guy but then when they spend time with him, they're like fuck this asshole you know yeah, he's they like what a... he himself is not intimidating he
1: is as they say a Dorcas malorkus <laughs> But he is, he's like a loser. And and like, even like the outfit prostitutes don't want to go to him. He's that kind of guy who's just-
0: he's cheap. That's the thing. That's a change <laughs> in payback, they say. It's because- uh, he beats them up, you know. But yeah. it's like in the book, it's like, because he he shortchanges them, you know, like he's supposed to pay 150 for the night, he pays them 135, you know. It's it's fifty
1: and thirty-five dollars, actually, which I think okay. is, you know, 1962 dollars, <laughs> because he balks at paying the woman for the night for a hundred dollars and yeah. has this like, she better be worth a hundred bucks. That's like inflation has affected things, but it is it is a funny detail where he calls the madam and is like, Don't I get an outfit discount? She's like, What are you talking about? You owe those women 15
0: you know outfit discount (laughs) you just take out for yourself oh mal you deserve to die um but yeah no i um it is even even after he turns into parker when he becomes reasonable and business like right before killing mal and decides i'm gonna go parker these motherfuckers in the outfit instead (laughs) um even after that uh he still has this moment where he goes back to uh the taxi guy stegman because he told him, if you tell Mal that I came came looking for him, I'm going to come back and kill you. And he does, even though there is nothing to profit from it. You know, it's pure vengeance. Like he said, he would come back and do it. And so he did. Even that, I feel like, is not very Parker-esque. But
1: he also has a thought process about it
0: with Stegman,
1: where he's like what am I killing so many people for? That mm-hmm. chapter sort of shows him being like, enough with this. This is breaking my patterns of how I do this. My 18 years worth of patterns that he keeps saying, and I'm breaking them to go kill this guy and put more bodies in my wake. This is not what I need to be doing. I need to be focused on what I do. And so the Stegman moment is a sort of refining of the idea of what is Parker, you know? And yeah. I think you're right that it's a little bit of Westlake going, wait, What is Parker in that moment as Parker saying, what is, who am I? It's Westlake saying, who is this guy? If I'm going to write more of these books, who is this guy? You know, kind of thing. He
0: even kind of lazily schedules the pickup of the money. So (laughs) he'll be in the Brooklyn area where he can immediately go and kill Stegman (laughs) right afterwards. It's like, come on, Parker. You can make two trips, buddy. You know, I know, <laughs> I know nobody wants to go to Brooklyn, but yeah, um, once, let's just do one trip and then get out of there. I agree, Parker. <laughs> but it isn't it is interesting because this one obviously is the best known, you know, because it's been adapted so, you know, famously Lee Marvin and everything like that. People if people know a Parker book, they know this one. And yeah, it just it's funny that he's still figuring it out that it's, uh, you know, very different from the other ones. And so if you read this one, you can't necessarily say, oh, you've definitely read a Parker book the way that, you know, most of them would come to kind of shape themselves.
1: Yeah, literally, if you go to the next one, Man with the Getaway Face is almost like the platonic ideal of a Parker book. Absolutely. It's like the most stripped down in every way it could be. And in, in, in that
0: way. Um, so it's fine, because obviously it's a fan- phenomenal book and it is obviously a parker book but it just is kind of funny that like if this is the one you know you there's so much you don't know about this character
1: yes it's so much the brutality there's a they're famously brutal books although i don't think of them that way the parker series is a fun series generally i yeah. think if you compare it to something from a similar time frame like friends of eddie coyle friends of eddie coyle is very real and very unpleasant You know, this book is like fun the way like West, West Westlake is like preternaturally incapable of being truly dark and unsettling he's just not that kind of a writer to really um he just i feel like as a guy he just doesn't have that darkness in him to mine even when his films get dark they they because of his personality they remain fun somehow mm-hmm. they remain light this is the one that gets the closest to dark like when he's doing the stakeout of the outfit hotel and he just there's a random woman who's running a beauty salon and he decides this is the best place for a Stake out, and he punches her in the stomach ties her up and she suffocates to death because she has some kind of asthma that he doesn't realize he finds her inhaler and she's suffocated in the closet with her with a gag in her mouth and her her arms and legs tied up and it's like brutal and he's like this is and he's angry he's like this was stupid this was senseless i hate that this happened this was so dumb but it is like holy shit like how do you come back to rooting for that guy in any way which in the other books they do not
0: put in either movie adaptation because like how are you going to be able to side with the character after you see something like that happen
1: yeah even as he's you know (laughs) egging his wife onto suicide and things like that he's he does plenty of harsh stuff before that there's just a few things that are that where really this goes darker than than Westlake ever goes you know it just really does and I think that's why the second half when it gets down to the practicalities of the work, that these novels are about work, the work of criminals. They're like Jean-Pierre Melville in that way. They're about work, right? And the second half of this book gets down to the work of fucking over the outfit, you know, and getting what you want. And it becomes much more pleasurable.
0: That's just another reason why it's so interesting that this would be the first one, the introduction to this character, because you know, he talks about, you know, getting thrown off of his stride and, you know, this is not the way I operate and things like that. And it's funny, not really realize until he goes after the outfit that this is the way he normally operates. The, the death of the the woman in the beauty salon is out of desperation, you know, because more or less, he's annoyed to have to, like, sit in a restaurant with this waitress pestering him to order something, you know, off the menu. So he, like, gets out of there and is like, I just got to go find some other fucking place waitress where I'm not going to be bothered by anybody.
1: The waitress comes over and she's fidgeting with her wedding ring and clearly wants to flirt with him. And to scare her off, he says, not getting enough from your husband. And she gets, like, offended and walks away. That's what he says. He's very rude to every <laughs> to everybody in that in that sense.
0: Right, but but again, it's just like he has reached a dead end. You know, he's gone to people and not, you know, figured out where Mal is. He's finally gotten this lead oh, of this address that's this fortified hotel. You know, the Oak, Oak, Oakwood Arms, the outfit hotel that's on Park Avenue, and has no battle plan, no way of knowing when Mal comes or goes. And so he's just sitting there patient, you know, impatiently waiting for him to show up. And he's got, you know, that that's like when he reaches the level of desperation. And we should mention,
1: if it, we didn't make clear, the reason he decides to go after the outfit is Mal uses the money from the heist that he steals, the, the ninety three thousand four hundred dollars, uh, I, I guess after they pay back the bankroll, it's close to it's ninety thousand dollars in change that he gets. Uh, he gives that to the syndicate. He gives that money to the syndicate to be let back into it, right? And so Parker goes, well, Mal doesn't have the money. The syndicate has my money. So I've got to go to the syndicate if I want my money from this heist back, you know? And I think that another funny detail about the uh, crosses and double crosses and triple crosses is when the outfit asks him, where did you get the money? He has the realization that the arms deal might have been being run by the outfit that he might (laughs) have ripped them off. So he switches it to a payroll job in Des Moines that he heard Parker and two of the other heisters discussing that they had done. And so he he realizes, oh, I might have robbed my own employer. I better say this is From something completely unrelated to that, which I think is a a funny detail as well.
0: Especially when later Parker overhears it and like just kind of smiles to himself when he realizes that Mal has used this lie to not get in trouble with the But then
1: you you think about it and it's Parker might be stealing his money back from the syndicate but it's actually their money originally <laughs> it reminds me of the movie uh penny whistle blues do you know this movie did i ever show it to you did you ever course, watch it yeah 24 yeah. hour
0: uh film marathon at uh, where uh theater used to program it
1: it's this south african movie or it's filmed in south africa in 1957 Is actually made by british filmmakers but the plot of it is is there's this thief that steals some money and it's a small amount of money and when he's being chased he like throws it in a trash can so nobody will find it so he can get away and then a kid finds that money and he takes that money and uses it to pay off a grocery bill and the thief realizes oh my money has been paid at the grocery i've got to go steal it from the grocery store right so he steals it from the grocery store and then it gets he has to hide it again and a kid pays it to like donate it to the church so the church can get out of their like real estate debt and this money just keeps getting stolen and restolen and passed around the town everywhere sort of all of the town's problems are fixed by this thief just constantly stealing the money after it's used to pay off debts and improve people's lives this this book has that kind of quality to it of just like well whose money is this actually like who's actually morally righteous about this money you know that's another thing where it's like why do you identify with parker this is not his money in any meaningful sense it's a takeover job you know it's literally another criminal activity where he's gone in and ripped off other criminals there's not even any sort of like honor among thieves to him it's not not like he robbed, you know, it's not like he's stealing black diamonds for a poor African country that's being exploited. You know, it's not even <laughs> like, like that for the, are they diplomats in the black ice diplomats, score? That's right. Yeah. It's not even like justifiable in that way. You know, the, the target is not uh, is not even a sympathetic target. It's purely You're just- You make me feel
0: real sympathy for the outfit, honestly. <laughs> because after everything's over and he loses the money, it's his fault that they have paid him back. He hits them, he hits them again and tells the guy- Tell him Parker decided to take interest. You know? so it's <laughs> like he's robbing them all over.
1: Again. Yeah. And the final chapter of, of the book for spoilers is the police confront him about something completely unrelated. When he first gets to New York, he's trying to find Mal Resnick and he goes to see an old friend of his named Jimmy Delgado. Uh, and Jimmy's not around. Jimmy's running marijuana and cigarettes from the Canadian border. And as he's talking to it, it seems to be Jimmy's dad, right? That's who that character is supposed to be. So he's run, relation, yeah. running the convenience store. Some cops sort of shake him down and he gives them a, a phony story to get out from him. And then at the end of the book, they come to his hotel to talk to him because Jimmy has been arrested with marijuana and cigarettes. And the police remember him being in the back room at the convenience store giving this shady fake story. Right? I tell that, them
0: specifically, like, I'm not a dope runner. And they're yeah. like, why would you say that?
1: <laughs> and uh, and checking into the story and it falls apart completely. And so he's like, mm, "That's well, that's really interesting that you say that. Blah! And <laughs> tries to punch him in the face, kick him. And he grabs one of his two suitcases, the one with the money in it, and runs out the door, goes to the train station, gets on the train, looks in his suitcase and sees he's taken the wrong suitcase. He's left the $80,000 with the vice cops and he's just taken his dirty laundries with him <laughs> on the train and now he's got to get his money back. And as John mentioned, the best way to get his money back, get some interest from the outfit.
0: <laughs> Why? Well, so one of their various operations across yeah. the, yeah, because he's already threatened to call all his heist buddies who have been dreaming, fantasizing of hitting the outfit. You know, if only there was not going to be retribution and obviously terrible consequences, he threatens like to call them and just arrange like a mass heisting of you know various uh outfit ventures all across the country which is in fact a beautiful setup for a book two books from now Mm -hmm. where it's going to you know kind of form these into a loose trilogy uh when he takes on the outfit again in the book titled the outfit
1: Yeah. And but the final chapter of this book, it's a little it's a little Parker book and it feels (laughs) different in tone than the entire rest of the book. It's obviously was written after he was told to make Parker a recurring character. And it and it just it's it's him and a couple guys you never met before doing a heist with incredible efficiency and cleverness and then getting away scot-free which is so many of the heists are just him and some guy some guy you've never seen before some guy named ol or negroni or you know <laughs>
0: we're in a huckleberry hound
1: mask yeah yeah exactly <laughs> What are they named? Like Weissmuller and this one and stuff.
0: Elkins and Wimmerpaw. And Wimmerpaw
1: like and Elkins
0: <laughs> that you've never seen before. And, and it's funny because so many of his early crime books from this era end with like this really down ending of like, and then he was fatally wounded. So he's fucking dead or he didn't get the money after all. Like has that kind of ending of like, there's, oh, after all that work, he didn't get the money. Seems like the correct ending of The Hunter, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does very feel much, uh, very much feel like that's what it's leading up to. Is I he he blew it. Fate conspired against him. That kind of traditionally you know, that noir ending, which is derived from the Hayes Code, which is that they have to get their comeuppance and sort of becomes a childish cliche that you see in noir. You know, I always feel like, uh, I always feel like,
0: hey, Sterling Hayden's going to collapse right as he's got to his home ranch or whatever.
1: Yeah, that kind of like, it feels like, like teenagerous, puerile fatalism and cynicism that I was. Sure, I sure. always find it really unconvincing in war, and especially knowing it was required by censors too. It always, it always feels like I don't know. <laughs> because Parker almost feels gets childish.
0: clipped on his on his uh, escape too. He gets shot at, and they just barely miss, like they graze his shoulder or something, or like his jacket. Yeah. So like, it, there's even it even throws out the possibility, like I could have killed him right here, and there would be no more Parker books after this. Um yeah, it's interesting to like just think about how that ending kind of took shape. And it feels like it definitely had at least the uh he didn't get away with it, you know, <laughs> crime doesn't pay sort of ending. It's weird
1: reading this final chapter this time. For some reason, it really reminded me of the final chapter of Highsmith's Strangers on a train, which has a similar like, and then the police are there, you know, ending very abrupt like it has all of this narrative action in other directions. And then the final chapter is very abruptly the police uh, to, to shatter everything.
0: Right. Um, Betty, Betty Blanco from the Bronx is going to show up and kill Carlito right before the end of the movie.
1: It, yeah. It speaks to what a cliche, the original ending was going to be that mm-hmm. that sort of crime doesn't pay ending, you know, that's very traditional and noir. that's, that's a cliched it, that's as cliched as, you know, vanquishing the dragon, you know, and so while that ending of the book, the ultimate ending of the book does feel tacked on and strange and like from another novel altogether, it also feels invigorating and fun. It feels surprising and like what a fantastic change up from yeah, what I would have ever expected.
0: It, it's funny how it feels like some. somebody's seen a lot of crime and mystery books where they'll give you a sample series books where they have a series a uh, sample of the first chapter of the next book oh you know? yeah
1: yeah that's
0: exactly what it feels like except you know it's just it's just there it's just a parker short story thrown into <laughs> the end of the novel that you're like i i, I can't wait to read some more parker books where you're this. like
1: that's a really clever little heist that's really freaking cool yeah um And it does. And it's, it's, you know, it's funny when you, when I guess we would say, what's the first Parker book? The last chapter of the Hunter is the first, is (laughs) the first Parker book.
0: Absolutely. It is funny how quickly his time with the, the outfit kind of goes by. I mean, in terms of like page count and everything, because he basically goes from like one, you know, supervisor, regional manager to another first Fred Carter, and then Justin Fairfax. And then he deals over the phone with this person, Bronson, which I'm always surprised that, Bronson wasn't the added name by um uh, who made payback? Uh Hegeland.
1: Yeah. Uh, by Brian Hegelund
0: hadn't put that in there because he had all his, you know, references to like 70s crimes, the 60s and 70s crime stuff. That's actually from the book. His name is Bronson before Charles Bronson is a huge star. So uh but he goes through them very quickly. You know, and it seems like, he, you know, even though he we get to kind of see him taking out the um people stationed at the subway, you know, to you know, to try to kill him one by one, kind of recognizing who's a fraud and who's, you know, waiting, you know, to kill him and whose lunchbox he has to, to grab, to grab from them. Um, (laughs) Which man is drinking his Coke suspiciously slowly. But again, I think that's, you know, part of the fact that he's just Parker now. And so he's going to be able to take on all these fucking guys because, you know, (laughs) none of them, you know, are up to his standard.
1: Well, that's one of the things I like. It's about its depiction of the criminal syndicate where they aren't, the best and in fact one of the middle managers i think it's uh carter who says about his bodyguard after gets felled by parker he goes he's the best there is like in shock and parker's like no he lulls too easily
0: right and, yeah, and Fairfax has his bodyguards carry his luggage when he comes back from vacation
1: yeah and parker's like don't have him carry your luggage they you're, yeah, it's not their fault because <laughs> he's like i'm gonna fire them they're fucking fired and he's like it's you did this but the idea that the criminal syndicate is gets by on just being scary as being as big as the post office, as they say in the book, right, that people are just afraid to go after them and that they're not actually particularly sophisticated or adept criminals the way that Parker and his compatriots are the independent contractors. And that's something that's actually this book coming in 62. This book is hyper aware of corporatization and corporate structures. And it definitely has. I think that's part of what makes Parker romantic as a character and makes him appealing as a character is it has a man against the system feel to it. It definitely has like some of that same Putney Swope lifeblood pumping through it. You know what I mean? It has that same like taking on corporate structures feeling to it and that there are these independent businessmen who are almost artists, these independent workers who make their living by sort of the sweat on their brow and the of their knowledge and the competence of their abilities who are up against middle managers and sort of slovenly guys in offices who think they're the best but they're just some fucking asshole you know right. what i mean and if you yeah. spend any time in corporate america you know you're going to be surrounded by people who think they're the best but they're just some fucking asshole you know yeah, he and he
0: walks us I... through it too the corporalization of the outfit because he mentions how the hotel was built as a front for bootlegging right in the 30s yeah and uh you know gets busted a few times gets rated a few times by the cops. Uh, so they, they have to turn it into a real business. They have to turn it into an actual hotel with paying customers, you know, to, to get the, you know, to, for it to be worth anything. And then they slowly kind of incorporate the criminal enterprise back into it, but mainly just sort of as a, a refuge for some of the, you know, middle management
1: people. And I forget, they give a list of the, um, uh, I forget what the phrase is. It's like crimes that aren't illegal, but one of the things on the list is unionization. Like it's just a <laughs> funny list where they decide they can't, they're they're racket can't be illegal things for a time and so they get into like unions you know and that kind of thing i forget what else is on the list but it is it's a funny like uh like oh yeah there are activities that were like criminally organized that weren't necessarily illegal you know
0: (laughs) i like how it's kind of like the john wick hotel and that like they're like no no violence don't don't bring anything back to the hotel you know yeah um and you know in fact mal gets kicked out of the hotel right away when they realize he's got you know Know, some personal business you know catching up with him um but yeah no i think you know introducing parker the way at you know showing him as a guy with nothing literally practically nothing you know crossing this wobbly george washington bridge and then being able to build himself back into a person within a day just shows that he's got this resourcefulness that you know the in the the syndicate can't have because it's gotten too big and too part too much part of the system it's gotten too commercialized you know and they have and therefore much more vulnerable more so than a guy who's just, you know, has his only has to worry about himself and the clothes on his back and, you know, how he's going to get money to uh to to start to finance his mission against them. So yeah. yeah, it's definitely got that kind of man against, yeah, I like that a lot about the book. That's a really good point. It does have that
1: sort of American dream-ish quality of like. I will be a success with nothing but the clothes on my back, you know, and that if I'm if I'm smart and determined and competent and unflappable and and, you know, the opposite of lazy and opportunistic and slothful, then I've got a shot. You know, I've got a shot against everybody. And, you know, who who's definitely against that in the American dream is sort of these corporate power structures, which are inherently lazy and slothful and greedy and throw their sheer numbers around rather than, you know, why don't you go against the outfit? It's not because they're the best. It's just because there's so goddamn many of them. It's because they've got so many resources. And why are why are they being greedy? Forty thousand dollars is nothing to them. Why not just give it back to Parker? You know, as as he mentions to them, why not just give him his money back? Back. And that's in any time you deal with a corporation, you, you have in your personal life, like insurance companies, why are you nickeling and diming me when you are making billions? You know, and yeah. of course the answer is because I we nickel and dime everybody. That's the only way we have billions. We, have a business. We, d- we don't provide services. We're not talented. We're completely inessential. We're just willing to nickel and dime everybody and nobody can fight back because we're so big. And I think that is a deliberate and essential observation of the book I think it's very anti-corporate in that way
0: yeah Uh, and that they could specifically you know characterize Parker as like you know you're just a dirty criminal yeah. as opposed to them who isn't they are a criminal organization. <laughs> yeah. That's what they are. Which perfectly uh, leads into my dessert pairing, which is the grapes of wrath by John Steinbeck. <laughs> John,
1: we should mention we decided not to do a dessert pairing on this. Uh, aper- aperitif and dessert pairing. We decided to just be completely lean on this and just go through it. I'm not sure we made the right decision, uh but that, that style, was the man. idea. It's
0: not the right decision. Parker's
1: <laughs> We made our decisions and we got to live Can with you imagine it. Imagine Parker eating dessert. Ever. That's a that's another. But we came across this sort of um uh by accident just now. But Parker never regrets his decisions and spends time crying over spelt milk. That's essential about him. Mal spends a lot of time whining and regretting and second guessing himself. And Parker, when there's a problem, even if he caused it, he doesn't spend any time saying oh woe is me oh i'm an idiot for having done that he says okay here's the new problem we've got to solve it there's an essential pragmatism to him that's incredibly appealing even when he's bloodthirsty in the first half of the book is he's very pragmatic at all times too much so when he's murdering
0: too many people but (laughs) too much so for sure but yeah Mal's the kind of person who life at the outfit would really appeal to you know he basically can think about doing nothing just being a big shot i mean i guess that's just sort of you know, well, the, that's just sort of the uh, uh, capitalism, just sort of like all its, you know, face, yeah, right? But
1: what is his job? at the outfit is he shaking people down is he robbing banks
0: what does mal do once he's in the syndicate he like supervises like people driving up to canada to buy cigarettes and and, yeah he's booze right he's a bookkeeper
1: who essentially fills out the inventory orders for like smuggling cigarettes into canada and smuggling whiskey back in yeah he's literally
0: the accountant from the untouchables that one like wiener guy
1: yeah but he but he, he doesn't even do accounting work he just like counts boxes and makes sure the take is correct and hands it off he's literally useless middle management that's Price. literally what mal is you know incapable of making his own money utterly replaceable you know just a non-entity just a corporate non-entity in that
0: way absolutely and you're right that's the big difference between him and parker parker is just his own man he is an independent worker Self-employed in the criminal department.
1: <laughs> now, John, because this book—it's obviously a cult book that a lot of people love, that you and I love. What makes this book so special? It's sort of hard to pinpoint, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, other than obviously introducing a really amazing character that you know is—you're just from the very get-go—you're into. What do What do you I don't know? What do you think?
1: Well, that's what I'm that's why I'm asking you is I'm saying it's hard to pinpoint its style is obviously very terse and stark, which is striking. It's got a brutality and directness to it throughout that's bracing. But I I would say, like, it's not the knee plus ultra of either of those things. It doesn't take either of those things to some ridiculous extreme. It's not like the the Raymond Carver of crime novels. You know (laughs) what I mean? It's not that terse and and abbreviated of a book um the character is interesting but like the you know the ultra competent heist criminal who's masculine who women love and men fear this is not the world's most original character by any stretch of the imagination um and he's certainly based in archetypes you mentioned like sterling hayden in the killing you know Mm mm-hmm Um, but there's something about this book that's under you read it, and it's undeniably like a special genre book, it just undeniably is, and I'm and I find it very hard to pinpoint, um, Maybe it's just that it that I've the thing I've mentioned a few times that Jean Pierre Melville esque focus on the work itself that it's much more detail oriented about how these criminal organizations work, uh, how his his heists and scams work, what the thought process is, the criminal thought process amongst everybody. It's hyper specific in those ways, uh, without being it's interesting and it's and it's clever without being baroque you know there's sort of the two main schools of crime fiction, right? You know, the the Agatha Christie locker room mystery types and the Dashiell Hammett two-fisted hard-boiled types, right? Those are sort of the two main tributaries that that Poe starts it and then they branch off into those two main tributaries, right? There's sort of both of those things in Poe who basically invents crime fiction as we know it and then the two things branch off from them. This is undoubtedly on the the Dashiell Hammett side of it of the just two-fisted, brutal, hard-boiled sort of um, direct dialogue-driven kind of thing, sort of criminal authenticity tributary. But it also has something of Agatha Christie's, the locked room mystery, the like, there's no footprints in the snow. How did they pull this off kind of thing? It's not a mystery novel at all. But I would say it's it treats its stories almost like if you took a mystery novel and weren't like we'll tell you at the end how the mystery was solved. It's like, what if we showed you from the beginning how the mystery is solved? Here's the cleverness of the mystery, but we're walking you through it rather than saving it until the end. I think it has a bit of that too. I think it's sort of the best of both worlds.
0: That's Maybe- interesting. I mean, d- definitely the moment that you should, you know, really jump out of your seat in this book when you're reading it is when we've been with Mal for several chapters, and then Parker just suddenly shows up at the window of the hotel. Yeah. And then we're going to cut back to, you know, find out how Parker got there. There is a lot of intrigue to that. And uh, like you said, you know, the go- cutting, you know, cutting back and forth through time, the structure of it is just masterfully done. And yeah, I think that that's definitely kind of in the, you know, mystery kind of genre for sure.
1: Yeah. What, what's your answer? I've talked a little. I threw myself out there. Do you, what, well, I, I, to you, I, I what like makes this book special? Why do you return to it? To me, it's hard to separate from the whole series, I think, is also yeah. part well, of I it. I think too. that's kind
0: of what I've been saying, you know, this whole time is that, you know, it's weird that this one is so different. You know, I definitely, when I, you know, first started reading the series, had seen Point Blank multiple times before reading this book, you know, like, I just knew it as that kind of iconography of, like, just lee marvin and you know the 60s and just john Borman and that incredible movie so to me it was like oh it's just this classic revenge story this guy who got screwed over and he's coming to get his money back um but really it's not what it's not what it is at (laughs) all that's why it's so weird about it and the noir element specifically you know the kind of you know the 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 prostitute that he goes to to information who kind of like the femme fatale who he tells you know and she says, I, I gotta tell him, I'll come and tell him you're coming. And he tells him, you know, you better not. You know, those yeah. elements are not like the appealing things in the book, the kind of cliched stuff. It's definitely everything you mentioned. It's definitely the style uh, and the, just the attitude of the character, who is not the most original archetype of a criminal, perhaps, but is just from the very beginning such a unique, stylized character. You know, just the, he's just, like that archetype of Parker is unique. He's that archetype sort of taken
1: from coal and pressed down into the diamond, to use that kind of cliche. He's somehow that architect just pressurized so intensely down to its minimum that he's now you know as sharp as a diamond that he's just now diamond cut archetype you know and i think there's something to be said for that too that what if what is appealing about that archetype let us reduce that character to only those qualities you know to mm-hmm. to what's striking about the archetype let's let's reduce him to that it's it's also funny talking about these books and talking about the larger series there's lots of parker fans i think if you asked any of them normally when there's a long series uh, and you ask people what's your favorite a lot of times it'll be the first in the series like that's the best one that kicked it off and gets your interest i don't think any parker fan would pick the hunter as their favorite parker book it would be very surprising for me to hear that if somebody's read all 23 of them or 24 now i'm sorry if they've read all of them and and is like the hunter is definitely my favorite that would surprise me
0: in oh, a way very much so yeah
1: yeah in a way that like we were just discussing in Indiana Jones I expect everybody to pick Raiders for their favorite Indiana Jones movie you know there's a lot of series like that where you know I, I just expect people to pick the first or the second one in series that's that's generally how it is um, this one I I don't think I I don't think anyone would pick man in the getaway Fa- man with a getaway face as much as I love that book uh, it's too like archetypal Parker it's too like platonic ideal of Parker to, to pick It. Um, And it just feels like that's kind of strange about this book, too, where it is such a special book that kicks off such an amazing. Just engrossing, uh, you know, uh, damn near perfect series, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that that um, damn near flawless. That would be a better word for the series than perfect. But uh, I
0: but was just explaining the plot of the Thin Man to my kids, and I yeah. reminded myself it's not the first time in my life to remind myself that that's a standalone book, you know, that yeah, a, a series of Nick and Nora novels written by Dashiell Hammett. That was only you know, of course, the films. And it just seems crazy. Like what if Parker died at the end of this book or he went off, you know, he never wrote another one. If this was a standalone book, like would it feel as special as it does without like the context of all the other, uh, the other Parker, you know, exploits and, it's, especially it's, it's, it's when, a lot, of, to think yeah, about. when yeah. a lot of yeah when a lot of Westlake standalones
1: are so strong yeah, If this if you're comparing it to his other standalones well like the axe
0: is is the one you know what I mean like oh, even 361 from the same year is yeah a phenomenal standalone novel about you know this guy you know needing answers getting vengeance you know need, you know kind of like coming to this uh cataclysmic ending through a series of violent vignettes you know I mean it's very similar in a lot of ways but certainly is wouldn't you never find anybody who says it's more celebrated of a book than the hunter
1: yeah and there's so there's so many that can stand toe to toe with it even just as a book like a first book in a series the hot rock is is phenomenal the hot rock is very memorable in, in that way i think it can easily stand toe to toe with this you know yeah. um so it is it is funny in that way but at the same time there is there's just something about this i guess it's just in the larger context of the series but it's like it's a special book and you know when you're reading it like something special has happened and i think if if he never wrote another one but the final chapter was still in it I think you would be like, that's an awesome book. This book ends in such an awesome, unique way. I've ne- I've almost never read a Heist novel that ends like that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that it might. I think its its strong qualities might be even more apparent. Um, if there if there wasn't a series, you know, if it was you talked about the arc of this character who within the story drops the revenge halfway through and becomes like a um, a a proficient, uh, emotionless, logical, you know, character would be like this really neat thing happens with this character. Instead of as it goes on, he becomes more desperate and unhinged. He becomes more rational and put together as the book goes on. It's sort of an inversion of the stand Standard noir uh, noir stereotype where everybody starts out very cool and collected and sure of themselves and by the end of the book is a desperate wreck it's the opposite of that he starts yeah. out as a desperate wreck <laughs> and becomes more cool and collected as the book goes on
0: that's great yeah absolutely i completely agree with that and it as a novel by itself it's fantastic you know looking at the whole series it's not my favorite one but it's <laughs> without it there wouldn't be a series i mean i think that pretty much
1: just sums it up <laughs> what is your favorite one well
0: like i said i love that uh, the, the the final trilogy of the original run uh, yeah i do i love i do love man with the getaway face a lot it's great um uh yeah when I read through of all of them I it was
1: like when I got to the outfit I was like oh this is great this has got to be like one of the best in the series and I read the morn, I was like oh I love this one too this might be the best in the series and I read the juggernaut and I was like wow what a change up a this might the be the too. best in the series yeah. and I read the handle and I was like oh shit this is easily my favorite and it's <laughs> it's sort of one of those series where as you keep going there's like, you'll encounter six or seven of them where you're like, well, this is obviously going to be the best. This is impossible to top until you get to Slayground, plunder squad, butcher's moon, which really is you leave it feeling like, well, that's impossible to top those three connected together and and not even a loose trilogy and a very direct through line kind of trilogy.
0: Yeah. And butcher's moon just feels epic. I mean, not just because it's much longer than any of the other books. It just has kind of like a this is really parker going all out you know with a huge conclusion you know the big finale right here has that kind of feeling to it so
1: yeah and slay and slay Ground has such a fun as evoked by the title like playground like goof of almost goofing around with parker but it's great feeling you know what yeah. i mean it's like parker in like just in a completely different setting and approach than you're ever used to seeing him. And it works perfectly. It works sort of unexpectedly. And then Plunder Squad is like, what if you just built it out of the heist? You know, Plunder Squad is like, what if you just built the plane out of the black box? It very much has that (laughs) that feel to it is like, what if you just built a book out of everybody's favorite part of every Parker book, you know? And then, and then Butcher Moon is the finale. Butcher Moon is like the fucking come out and play Freebird. You know what I mean? Don't, don't <laughs> skimp on the solo. You know, it does, it definitely has that like epic finale, you know, the, the, the encore, come back on stage. Let's, let's do, let's do the outfit again, but 10 times louder and bigger and cooler,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah man i love this series i love talking about these books this has been great and i would just love to continue doing this happy 60th uh, birthday the hunter great book
1: <laughs> yeah and when i when i met abby westlake after a screening point blank i told her i was there with my son's mother and was like we named our son after parker and you know what she said oh no that was her that was her response.
0: Uh, she was right to respond Yeah. <laughs> That's totally reasonable for her.
1: Super duper sweet. She was uh Wesley. Like...
0: Did you tell her I named my daughter Honeybum Bazo? <laughs> I told her you named your daughter Salsa.
1: Um you na- I told her you named your daughter George All. That's what I told you you named it. Georgina all. Um yeah, no, but uh but Fuck, I had something I was going to say and we got I got knocked off my train of train of thought from that. Oh, no, 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 no. Just that Westlake has said that um, he only give he would give his his books to three readers in order, his wife uh his uh agent or his manager and his editor and those would be the only people he'd solicit for his vi- advice his wife was a nonfiction writer in her own right published a couple books and they just seem like they seem so lovely and charming they just seem like perfect life they lived in upstate new york very where near where you lived for a number of years right yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: in really in miles away yeah and Ancram was really the name of the garden. city really yeah you've never told me about their house
0: yeah they, that's the main thing It's like, they had like a giant garden and i later found out because i couldn't see it you know from the road or anything but they had like a really nice swimming pool area around the garden it just looked like a lovely like you know writer's retreat kind of house like the perfect upstate writer's retreat type of uh residence
1: yeah like scenic hudson valley scenic hudson valley upstate kind of kind of stuff yeah. um and very cool. And one of the later Parker books takes place in the Hudson Valley. They rob a riverboat. Literally casino.
0: in Hudson. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The which full, is
0: where the full history of the its uh past a whaling town <laughs> and red light district. It's so uh, he did his research.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is where where you were living for a number of years, although you've moved to scenic Poughkeepsie. That's um cool. just to be closer to the Taco Bell and Little Caesars. Um but uh yeah but they just seem like like i said before that's the thing that's strange about these books is he's parker is like the ultimate cold-blooded criminal but he's written by such a of just inveterately nice guy you know that that i think that does something to the tenor of these books as as dark as they get as violent as they get they never get bleak or despairing you just can't it's not in his blood in that way. It just isn't, you know?
0: Yeah. I, it's 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 such a way where, like, you kind of knowing Westlake, anything that Parker says you can kind of take with a grain of salt and laugh at, you know, even though he's yeah. like, threatening people or doing something horrible, you know, you're always like, oh, that Parker, you know? So <laughs> oh, we love him. We love him for it because you can kind of feel Westlake, you know, having a fun time writing him like this
1: yeah and when there's like all of the traditional like not just violence but sort of the the misogynistic like ah, these dames kind of elements to the early books when he by the time he finds claire that stuff is all very much
0: by the wayside in the books very much like but when another it, one of the things that from this book that, you know, isn't so much in the area.
1: Yeah, but even when you feel that, it feels more like you can really feel him having fun with the cliches and the stereotypes of those oh, scenes of yeah. more than like a throbbing anger at women, which you can feel in like Hitchcock. When you watch Hitchcock movies, you feel how much that guy like hates women. Like you watch Shadow of the Doubt and that movie exists for Joseph Cotton's monologues about how much he hates women. You can like feel it throb- robbing in certain artists, you know, frenzy is just like, what's frenzy about? It's about how much he hates women. That's it. There's nothing else to frenzy. There's no story. There's no ideas. There's not even good filmmaking. It's just like, wouldn't it be interesting to film women getting choked to death on screen in elaborate detail? And it's like, I don't know about that, man. What's uh, What else about it? No, I've just got some cool ideas for shots of women being choked to death with stockings. Yeah, okay, <laughs> man. But, and with West, like, you don't feel that throbbing hatred is what I'm saying. You don't feel any of that. It feels more like this is what these scenes are like. Here's some kind of uh, interesting or weird or maybe ultra or observations. How far can I take this? When can I scale it back? what would be a funny line for her to have here what would be a funny line that in its intense cruelty and insensitivity he seems aware of like oh that would be interesting to to take that as far as it can go
0: at times definitely or even you know if you want to talk about good artists like you know uh, fellow writers like Jim Thompson or uh or Highsmith you know (laughs) like definitely a lot of their you know their writing is like you know who sucks women (laughs) <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Nobody hates women more than Patricia Highsmith. That is undoubtedly true. The Patricia Highsmith special of the significant other who just needs to shut the fuck up for five minutes. Like it's the most intense characters in all of her books. And same thing with Jim Thompson, where he's like an open sore of emotions and just some of the emotions dribbling out. They're about race and sex and class and you know, uh, the cruelty of the world and the depravity in the human mind and self-deception. And it just oozes out of those books. It's just like a, a pustule. He's squeezing over and over and the grossest things are coming out of it, you know, happens in Thompson. There's not that to Westlake, you know, he's yeah. sort of like a doctor looking at that pustule and diagnosing it and cutting it open and prodding it as to sort of explore it because these pustules are interesting. And, you know, I'm a doctor and and so I got to deal with pustules. I can't come in here to work and say, there's going to be no pustules in my work. This is this is part of what I do as a crime fiction author is, you know, we talk about dames with tan thighs and pale
0: bellies, you know? Yeah, it's funny that my like reaction to this is, oh, we should cover another Thompson book. That would be fun. <laughs> it would, it's been a while. It's been a while. Have we yeah.
1: only done Golden Gizmo? That's it. We should do Population 1280 at some point, right?
0: Perfect, yeah
1: we should do the best one at some point is what I (laughs) is what I mean.
0: Um, And and we should do one on man with the getaway face. Let's do it. Let's do it soon because I really just love rereading these. I'm going to reread them all. Just have a fun time all over again. I've been waiting a few years now, very excited, very, you know, anxious, but trying to be patient to like get back on the Parker train. And now that I'm on it, I want to keep I want to stay on the track.
1: Let's do it the way we did it last time. You loan me all of your copies of them when you're done so I can be one book behind you the I entire time. I have multiple
0: time. copies of each book now, so <laughs> uh, that's not going to be a problem you can have you know, one of my copies of it, of each one.
1: Um Yeah, I have very spotty. I just have like random ones throughout the series because really I did read your copies. I remember being at the Sundance Film Festival and uh, waiting in line. There's so much wine line waiting at that festival. It's fucking horrible. And uh, reading Plunder Squad and Butcher's Moon while waiting in line and everybody being like, oh, a book, you have an actual book. Me being like, yes, I'm reading it. Wow, a book in your hands, a real book. Mm, Yep, trade that book for some skis. Yeah. Are you going skiing? Are you going to some parties? Uh, my plan was to watch movies at, at this film festival. That's not this really what this is a about.
0: writer who wrote the book that The Hot Rock, a Robert Redford starring movie was based on. <laughs> he's also he's also written books that were
1: turned into vehicles for Martin Lawrence <laughs> and Peter Coyote. Does that mean nothing to you? Peter Coyote a hippie. He's got to be associated with Sundance.
0: Christopher Lambert mean anything to you? <laughs> Chris Lambert and Lloyd together for the first time.
1: Ah, uh, is there anything else we want to say about the Hunter other than happy birthday and God damn it, I love you.
0: It's great. Like you said, we'll do another episode where we talk about Point Blank and uh, and Payback and kind of talk about. all of them changes the interesting kind of you know changes they made all of them made in usa yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know we'll just we'll
1: hit them all we'll hit them all like we're parker going after the outfit
0: perfect i'm salsa i'm grofeld
1: um i will uh i will talk to you later about those that's how i was going to end those episodes great john talk to you later talk to you later
0: about the parker books (laughs) i thought i'm salsa and i'm grofeld was a perfect way to (laughs) (laughs) cut it off right there (laughs) I guess we could have mentioned the uh, Shane Black uh, movie coming out, but why bother? I'll believe a Shane Black
1: movie is coming out when it's out.